Open your, uh, your Bibles <laughs> or your device to the book of Acts, chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. Last week, we looked at Peter and John, uh, two of the disciples whom Jesus had called while they were tending their nets in Capernaum, their hometown on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, some three and a half years before the events we read about here. And now, after having received the baptism of the Spirit at Pentecost, the two men had gone up to the temple at three in the afternoon. It was uh, what was the called the hour of prayer, the, the, at nine o'clock and at three o'clock, the early sacrifice, the late sacrifice, uh, the times of the day when people would go up to the, the temple. Uh, and in this case, for the hour of prayer, they uh, uh, had entered the temple through what is was known as the gate beautiful. We also call it the golden gate, the eastern gate of the city, uh, Jerusalem being a walled city. And uh, uh, the eastern side of the city walls actually went directly into the temple area. Uh, it still does, for that matter. It's the gate, uh, this golden gate, the, the, the gate beautiful. It's also the gate, according to Jewish tradition uh, through which Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, will come. And uh, many in the church believe that as well. Uh, and I, I, don't, I don't doubt that. I don't see specific reference to that in God's word, but uh, it makes sense. So at the gate, they'd encountered a 40-year-old man. Now, the reason we know that is we t- we're in Acts chapter 4, we're told his age. And so this guy had been lame from birth. He had been, he had never, ever, ever walked. Uh, We looked at that again last week. Uh, He was carried to the beautiful gate every day to beg alms, to an almsgiving we talked about last week. It wasn't just panhandling. It was their form of welfare. It was where people would go and and from the generosity of others, um, they would be able to at least get enough money to buy bread for that day. But think about it. If you're going to beg alms, what better place than a crowded place where all the religious people are? And this guy, uh, I mean, they're the ones who are known for being merciful to, or and for being generous, also being compassionate. And uh, this guy might be lame, but he's not stupid. <laughs> Over the years, he had of necessity gotten it down. He knew where to go. And the gate beautiful was the place. So uh, something else I think about here, and, and I don't know if it's true in your life, but I know uh, when people are not wanting to engage someone who is looking for a handout, uh, their tendency is to divert their eyes. I don't see him. I don't want to know. <laughs> and and, and I mean, I, I've done that before. I'm not saying that I always do because there are times where the Lord charges me to, to wade in. Uh, I have, uh, I, I marvel at my wife. She has eyes for people in need and, and very often I've told her, you know, I pray that the Lord gives me eyes like yours in that sense because I don't see that way as much as I'd like to. Anyway, the tendency is to divert their eyes, to divert our eyes, but not Peter. (laughs) Instead, he barrels into this guy and urges him to look back at him. 
Remember, he says, look at me. And he says that very certainly. And I, I imagine with authority, he lost eyes with this guy because he wants his undivided attention for what he's about to do. We also talked about how foreign it would be to this man to hear the words in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He'd been doing this for a long, long time. And nobody had ever said anything like that. We know that those are, that's a Bible passage. I mean, we understand that. I mean, Jesus would tell people to rise up and walk because we've read it and all. But there was no point of reference at this point in the first century for anybody to tell this guy to rise up and walk. And we understand that terminology, but this guy wouldn't have a clue. So he wouldn't understand until Peter reached down and took this man by the hand and hoisted him onto his feet. We're told in the text that as he did, the man's ankles and feet had been strengthened. So I mentioned also last week that the intensity of this moment, folks, you've got to, you just got to be there. I mean, just in your mind, in your heart, to understand that this is a powerful scene. And as the reality of this healing was sinking in, this guy was completely overwhelmed. <laughs> in his wildest dreams, he never would have imagined this moment. Would you? I mean, none of us would. Uh, get up and walk. He not only got up and walked, he began to leap around. He was, he was excited, praising God. And the people in the immediate vicinity recognized him. They thought, that's the guy that's been at the gate. What, has he been faking it all this time? What's going on here? And he's up on his feet. He's jumping around. He's, he's clinging, holding on to these two guys that had done this thing. Not only was the man undone by what had happened, knowledge of this indisputable miracle had left the people standing around slack-jawed. They were just like, what is going on? They were, the text says they were standing in wonder and amazement, literally beside themselves at what had taken place. Now we're told in verse 11, now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So I spoke last week about the flash mob. <laughs> if you don't know what that is, look it up on the internet. It's where a mob gathers and people, I mean, he got the attention of the people standing around them directly. And then the people standing off a little distance away would say, what's that crowd there for? What is all the hubbub going on? And so they come in and then the crowd building on itself. Pretty soon there is a huge mob of people standing there with Peter and John and this guy hanging on to them. And, and, and it's just an amazing scene. There can be little doubt that as the people observe this miracle, that their attention would fall upon Peter and John. I mean, again, think about it. Here's this guy hanging on to them. They know that he's been lame for all the years they've been coming, all the years they've been coming through the temple area and they see him at the gate and they're thinking, who are these men that did this? What kind of magical, and if I could use that term, what kind of magical power, what kind of supernatural power do they have? Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 12 where we left off last week because Peter senses uh, that they are misinterpreting the whole scene. They're misinterpreting the circumstances that they're seeing with their own eyes. In verse 12, 
says, so when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? <laughs> I think about loosely in our vernacular, what are you looking at? <laughs> and, and why do you look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness, we made this man walk? So Peter informs the crowd as to what had not happened. It wasn't us. It wasn't because they were such godly men. It wasn't because they had some kind of power that, you know, they were doing. I mean, yeah, they did have power, and but it was power that was delegated by God himself, that they were somehow spiritual or more spiritual than the others. And it's immediately important to Peter that he needs to fix this. He needs to correct their misinterpretation of what's going on. He's proactive and seeing to it that God alone gets the glory for what's happening. And folks, I got to tell you that as the Lord uses us, let that be a settled issue in your life, in your heart. Uh, if I'm going to be an instrument in the master's hand, I must understand that I am no more than that. And that's a big deal. God doesn't share his glory. We are not created for that. Uh, praying this morning, uh, one of the, the guys prayed, Lord, I pray that your glory is safe here with us. And, and, and that was something that came up when we went to the men's conference. And, and it, it just so spoke to me as like, God, I want your glory to be safe in this church. There ain't nobody out here trying to hog the glory. There ain't nobody up here <laughs> thinking they're all that and more. It's for you illustration that I love is, is that no one after having surgery <laughs> begins to heap praise upon the surgeon's scalpel. Oh, would you please bring me that scalpel that the surgeon used? I've got to see the scalpel that he used to cut me open and fix it. That, how silly that would be. Rather, they recognized that it was the surgeon who was the one at work and the scalpel was a tool. So Peter now begins to address the crowd telling them what had taken place. Uh, he's told them what it wasn't. Now he's going to tell them what it was. He's going to turn their attention from he and John, even from the man who'd been healed, to the one responsible for the miracle. Now we're told in chapter 2 that the miracles, uh, that the, 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 the reason for the signs and wonders and miracles that had taken place, and we've looked at it, I'm not going to belabor it again, but it's worth reminding you of that, is that their purpose was to attest, that they were to testify uh, of, or they were to point to the one who worked the miracles. Uh, Jesus was very clear. He said, you know, don't seek me because you saw a sign. Seek me because that sign identifies me as the one who can forgive your sins. I mean, he, and he says, what's greater, to heal somebody on the Sabbath or to forgive sins? He's linking directly the reason for the signs. And Peter here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he begins to illuminate the one to whom the miracles attest. So important. Verse 13, he says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. So Peter launches. Uh, I mean, again, a huge crowd. We're told in chapter 4 that 5,000 people are converted, that 5,000 people come to Christ through this. Um, and for the second time in as many chapters, Peter begins to address this crowd, and he begins by getting right onto their turf. He says, uh, he's speaking to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of Israel. He's saying, that's us. 
Peter was a Jew. He's speaking to Jews. He's telling them that their God had sent his servant, Jesus. Now, the concept of the servant of the Lord being synonymous with Messiah was a familiar thing to the Jews. They understood when somebody talked about the servant of the Lord, that they're talking about Messiah. Isaiah 42, it's spoken of the servant of the Lord who would come. Isaiah 52 and 53, it's spoken of the suffering servant. We'll look at that in a bit. Peter boldly set the guilt of Jesus' death squarely where it belonged here. He said, you did this. We saw that in chapter two as well. He doesn't mince words. You got to understand too, that among those people in the crowd there uh, on the temple mount uh, near Solomon's porch by the gate, beautiful that day were very likely many of them were those who had shouted not many weeks before, Hosanna, as they saw this rabbi riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, laying palm fronds in the road, throwing them down, screaming, shouting, welcoming Messiah. But it was a Messiah according to their own dictates, according to their own desires. This would be the same ones who by the end of that week had been in the crowd shouting, crucify as Pilate had pleaded with them to let him go. And notice, Peter doesn't let the Gentiles off the hook either. Uh, While the Romans, they were the ones who crucified Christ. Peter points it out that it was they who had delivered him up. When Pilate wanted to set him free, it was they who had denied him. In verse 14, he says, but you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. So in verse 13, and here again in verse 14, Peter drives home the fact that they had denied him. Sound familiar? I have to think that with regard to Peter's own failure, um, he knew he was forgiven. He knew he had been restored there at the shores of the Sea of Galilee. But he also knew that his own denial had been perhaps the hardest thing he had ever endured. And that had to be still in the front of his mind. And the, the way that he addresses this crowd, he leads off with saying, you denied him. And he doesn't just say it once, he says it twice. More than that, I believe that Peter uh, had to have clearly remembered the crushing weight of the conviction he had experienced as a result. Uh, when I think about that, I think about when they were leading Jesus out of the high priest's house And he locked eyes with Peter in the midst of his denials. What a scene that would have been. And and Peter here preaches boldly, preaches with authority to this crowd because he knows their hearts. Uh, Furthermore, in their denial, he's saying, you traded the Holy Holy One of Israel. Now, again, the Holy One of Israel, that, that term is used over 40 times in the Old Testament, a familiar theme. Uh, He said, you traded him for a murderer. Speaking, of course, of Barabbas. Now in verse 15, the word play is specific and powerful. Peter says, you killed the prince of life. Now we read in the gospel of John chapter one, uh, verse one, he says, in the beginning, John says, in the beginning uh, was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. So in the Gospel of John, Jesus is described here in this opening verses of the Gospel of John as the author of life. Nothing came into being uh, in the beginning. 
Now, the Greek word for in the beginning here, uh, it's an eternal word. It's a word that's hard to translate into English. It literally means back beyond that. Oh, and by the way, back beyond that and back beyond that. It, 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 there, it's not a reference to a point in time. He's talking about eternity past. And folks, you got to get, and I'll tell you what, this is one of those concepts in the Christian church that will, uh, I, my circuit breakers start to pop. Ting, ting, ting. I just can't, we can't get there from there because what we're doing is we're reaching into the infinite with finite brains and we're not wired for it. We're, we don't understand eternity, but rest assured, it's not a bunch of days. <laughs> And again, you're not going to get there from here, so don't try. But the point is, he's saying that Jesus was the one in the beginning, in eternity past, and that he was the author of life. Now, in Acts chapter 3 here, in verse 15, the word translated prince, it comes from the same root word as the word beginning in John. And it literally translates author or originator. Uh, Peter's telling the crowd, he's saying, look, you not only denied him and set a murderer free in his place, you killed the author of life. <laughs> you, can, can you see the irony in this? Think of it. You killed the one who created you, the one in whom life itself originates. And, and I have to add what love God has for us, for them. That here, the creator God would step from eternity into time, be born as a man, step into his own creation, to grow up, to be tortured and executed in order to atone for the sins of humanity. That is just, it's an amazing, amazing thing to to ponder, to to contemplate. In verse 17, um, he's going to tell them that he understands that their actions were done in ignorance. But that wouldn't negate or minimize their need for repentance. It doesn't, they don't get off the hook. And the reason why is you got to understand Jesus was not forced to go to the cross. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when the soldiers showed up, he said, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And his response was, and the text says, I am he, but he's in italics. His response was, I am. And that is the covenant name for God right out of Exodus chapter 3. And at the, at the moment that he says, I am, every one of the Roman soldiers in the Roman cohort, the, the, the garrison that they had sent out after him, every one of them was knocked on their, on their keister. The, every one of them fell backwards. Why? Because he needed to demonstrate that he wasn't being taken by force. He signed up. He's essentially holding his hands out and saying, go ahead. Bind me with a rope and take me away. My hour has come. I have to do this. So he wasn't forced to go to the cross. The plan of redemption for humanity was far greater than their small ideas regarding both the king and his kingdom. Obviously, this prince of life, this author of life, couldn't remain in the grave. Uh, He had no sin. The Bible tells us he was tempted in all ways, even as we are, and yet without sin. Sin, the result of sin is death. And since Jesus had no sin, death could not hold him. The grip of death could not remain. Peter's saying, we've seen him. He resurrected. We're witnesses to his resurrection. We know 
that he lives. And folks, again, it's a wonderful reality that we serve a risen and living Lord. He's not, he's not a mass God. He's not some historic figure that died and stayed dead. Every other, have you ever thought about that? Every other world religion, (laughs) their leaders died and stayed dead, not ours. He lives. Verse 16, in his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. He's saying, look at this guy that's hanging on to me. (laughs) Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So he's saying, not only is he well, he is perfectly well. And you know him. There's no way that you can dispute that this guy's laid at the gate every day for years, decades. So when Peter speaks of having faith in his name, he's not talking about a formula. You ever see that where, where some so-called preachers, they try to reduce the things of God to a formula? Well, if you say this, if you command this, and you could do this in Jesus' name, then this is what has to happen. It's like, no. You, what you're trying to do, if you, if you look at that, is you're saying that God is somehow in your debt to pull this thing off. And God will be a debtor to no man. It's not a formula. It's talking about faith as a gift. It's a grace. Now, last week we talked about in his name as being consistent with character, who he is, what he's about, the person and the work, the message and the messenger. And here we see that principle in action. Peter's speaking about having faith in his name because that's synonymous with having faith in Christ. Not only did the healing itself come from God, but even the faith to believe came from him. That's why, you know, folks, I completely reject any implication that people remain sick because they don't have enough faith to be made well. That is hogwash. And people get put under guilt and bondage and condemnation when they get taught garbage like that. There is nowhere in God's word that that is borne out. As a matter of fact, the opposite is true. And I don't believe that in the context here that it was this man's faith as well. And there are many instances in the New Testament where the faith of the person being healed doesn't come to play, come into play. It, it's not, doesn't even show up. Think about Jairus' daughter. Jesus healed this man's daughter. Think about Lazarus, four days in the grave. He stinketh. And yet Jesus rose him up. Once again, Peter's distancing from any aspect of taking responsibility for this miracle which is the right thing to do, the right thing to say. However, it begs the question, who is acting on faith here? The apostle or the lame man? I believe it was Peter's faith. And he's not saying, hey, look at me, look at my faith. That's not the point. And it's true also that through this miracle, this man would come to faith. He's already praising God. I mean, he's immediately on his feet giving glory to the one to whom glory is due. It's also true that, as I mentioned, a great many in the crowd would come to faith. 5,000 do. So how much faith is required? That's a fair question as we look at this. And as Peter talks about faith, well, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 17, if you have faith as a mustard seed, well, that's enough. How big is a mustard seed? (laughs) Have you ever looked at a mustard seed? I mean, it's, uh, the, the term eensy-beensy comes to mind. I mean, it's like 
Oh, there is one. I think I'm, let me, I have my trifocals on. Very small. Therefore, it's, it's fair to assume that some have a greater measure of faith than others. And I believe that's true. Romans 12, 3. The apostle Paul writes, he says, for I say through the grace given to me, again, this is by grace. This is because he merited it somehow. Uh, to everyone who is among you, not to think more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. I remember being uh, at a getaway with my pastor, Bob, who had an incredible measure of faith. He just trusted God. Uh, I read George Mueller's book about his orphanages and stuff, and I think, oh, I don't have that kind of faith. I mean, he doesn't have food for the orphans, and he prays, and it shows up every day and things like that. But the point is, is that Bob had this wonderful measure of faith. And there was one time where we were talking and I, I had to say, Bob, and he was talking about something we were doing with the church. And, and I said, brother, let me just explain to you something and remind you of something. You have a wonderful, powerful measure of faith. But that what you're talking about, many people in our church don't have that measure of faith. And I just want to ask you to pray about that because I don't want our people to get bound up or to get under guilt or to feel condemned because they don't have the same measure of faith that you do. So it's not about, is your faith greater or lesser than the person sitting next to you, than your spouse, people you know? It's not about that. How much faith did the woman with the 12-year issue of blood have? She had just enough to know that if she could just touch the hem of Jesus's garment, she'd be healed. And Jesus responds to her. He says, your faith has made you well. So the point is, it's it's about you exercising the measure of faith that you have been given. Uh, It's in this that God is glorified in your life. Uh, I want to share too. Some of the best advice that I've uh, ever been given was as I struggled after my daughter went to heaven. Uh, Her husband, Matt, knew my struggle. He spoke powerfully into my life one day as I was broken. I'd gotten stuck in my grief. I was thinking, I'm a spiritual guy and I trust God. But, but, but in that grief, I was trying to produce a measure of faith that I frankly didn't have. As he exhorted me, this is what he said. He said, John, stop trying to give God that which you do not possess. How about you fully give him that which you do? And folks, in that moment, I understood Romans 12:3. I understood that the measure of faith which I do have is enough. If you've been given a measure of faith to move mountains, praise God, that's wonderful. Use it humbly and use it for the glory of God, for the kingdom of God. And always remember that true believers have a measure of faith given by God. It's not up to you to judge how that looks with somebody else. It's up to you to desire that your own faith grow. Uh, Romans 12, 3, Paul, the apostle, he talks about, he says, he's talking about the brother who has weaker faith than you. He says, don't, don't you beat him up about that. I'm paraphrasing. He says, don't you beat him up about that. As a matter of fact, you support him and understand that if he is weak in faith and he can't eat certain foods or he does has a list of do's and don'ts, that's not for you to get on your high horse and think, well, how unspiritual is that? He says, no, you better humble out. You realize that he is operating with the measure of faith that he has. 
you support that, you understand that, and you pray for him, you get below him and you lift him up. It's so important. This isn't a competition. It's up to you, again, to desire that your own faith grow. And that's between you and the Lord. Uh, It's between them and the Lord. As long as we keep that in mind, we do well with one another because we all have a varying measure of faith. Uh, And we're utterly reliant upon God's grace and having come to believe the measure of faith which God has given to me, given to you, will always be enough. That's the point. Verse 17, yet now, brethren, Peter continues, he says, I know that you did it in ignorance as did also your rulers. So here, Peter pivots from you killed this guy and you killed the prince of life to, you know, you did it in ignorance. I understand that. He shifts to a more conciliatory tone here. Uh, he, he's charged Israel with murdering the Lord Jesus, but now he addresses the same crowd as his brethren. He says, but you, brothers, he says, you did it in ignorance because Jesus didn't fit their idea as to Messiah in their ignorance of what they truly believe that Jesus had come to do. What they thought he would come in power as a military commander, as a deliverer. They thought he was coming to set up his kingdom immediately and consolidate power away from the Romans. They really did think that he would come, that he was coming, that coming into Jerusalem the week before he was put on the cross, that he was coming as a world leader, as the one who would solve their problems. Peter says, you did it in ignorance. They were, they were, and they were ignorant of the true work that Jesus had come to accomplish. Uh, here's an example of their ignorance. In John chapter 11, the council, the, the religious, re, the, the creepy religious guys, that's what I call them, <laughs> the Pharisees and scribes and all that, uh, they got together, they, they convened a council because they were trying to figure out, okay, how are we going to kill this guy? We gotta, this guy is really getting under our skin. He is, he's undermining our power base. When we go to teach the people, we got like four people and they've got 3,000. You know, they, he, they did not like because Jesus taught as one with authority and he loved the people. He connected with them and, and they loved this guy and they did not. So they've got this council that they put together. And one of the guys, one of the, the religious leaders says, if we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Our power will be taken away. We will lose our toys. And Caiaphas, the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people and not that the whole nation should perish. Now this he did, John inserts this, he said, this he, this he did not say on his own authority, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. He, he's saying these things and he has no idea. Speaking of the need for Jesus to die for the nation, Caiaphas was prophesying in spite of himself, completely in ignorance. Verse 18, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Looking at prophecy, looking at the prophetic record, uh, I've mentioned before, there is a body of prophecy that has already been fulfilled. There is a body of prophecy that is yet to be fulfilled. And we sit right here. It's happening. We're, we're in that river of prophetic fulfillment. 
You've got to see your life that way. You've got to see it from that worldview. Otherwise, we get knocked off our pins by the things that go on around us. Here's some examples of, of the prophets, the, the prophecies that, that come to bear. In Genesis 3, I mean, three chapters into the entire Bible, we see the first prophetic word uh, as God pronounces a curse on the man and the woman. He says that, uh, he talks about the seed of the woman, that, that the seed, her seed would suffer. He says, you will bruise his, he will bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. Psalm 22 speaks of the Gentiles piercing Jesus' hands and his feet. Psalm 41 speaks about a close friend who will lift up his heel against him, prophesying of Judas' betrayal of Jesus. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12, we see the most powerful and comprehensive of the multiple prophetic prophecies which speak of the suffering servant, Jesus himself. I'm going to read an excerpt from that. Uh, This is part of how I came to know Christ, how growing up in a counterfeit religion on a camping trip one time, I read the book of Exodus, I read the gospel of Matthew, and there somewhere in, in all of that was a link back to Isaiah 53. And as I read Isaiah 53, and I saw the footnote saying, this was like 650 years before Jesus was even born. And I was absolutely blown away at, at the prophetic word. In Isaiah 53, 3, we read, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our well-being, for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Folks, there is no denying that Jesus, I mean, he says in the God, he says in the scroll of the book, in the volume of the book is written of me. It points to him whether directly or indirectly through types and shadows. It's about him. Peter here, he says, in light of all of that, because of that, because of these things I'm telling you, he says in verse 19, repent. There's that singular word. That's your response. He says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. That is just a powerful powerful statement. Notice Peter first tells them in verse 17 that when they crucified the Lord, when they crucified Christ, that they had done it in ignorance. And and you might think, well, great, they're off the hook. As I mentioned, not so fast. In verse 18, he's essentially saying, you should have known. You should have known. God had repeatedly spoken of the one to come through his word. And and folks, ignorance of his word in those days and willful ignorance of his word in these days is not and will never be a defense. When Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem coming down the mountain that day and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you've killed the prophets that I sent to you. 
and, and he weeps. He prophesies over the city. He pronounces judgment upon that city for their ignorance because it was willful. That's why he says here in verse 19 to repent. And we talked about repentance a bit last week. But it's important to remember that repent, that doesn't mean to apologize, I'm sorry. It goes further than that. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that Esau sought for repentance with tears, but none was found. Why? Because it wasn't a godly sorrow. He was sorry that he lost his birthright. He was sorry that, that, that he lost his blessing. But he wasn't sorry before God for the way and the manner in which he had conducted his life. He didn't find repentance, even though he was sorrowful about it. Repent and believe. You'll notice that those two go hand in hand. It's not just repent and it's not just believe. It's repent and believe. Change your mind and start thinking about it a new way. When that happens, your actions follow. When I talked about last week, when I talked about believe, if you believe that the roof is going to cave in, you're, if you really believe that, it's going to shape the way you behave. <laughs> and it does. So that's the stuff of conversion. It's not just believe. It's repent and believe. Turn from the old life. Embrace Messiah. Embrace Jesus as Messiah, creator God. The one who upholds all things by the word of his power. The result? I'm going to look at three benefits of what it is to repent and to turn to God. He says the result here is that your sins may be blotted out. I love that particular word. That is a cool word. In the Greek, it's exalepho. And what it means is to wipe away or to obliterate. Now, in the first century, you've got to understand this. This is why the word was used. And I'll show you another place here in a minute. Uh, the ink that they used when they wrote on papyrus scrolls didn't have the acid content that modern inks have. All right? Uh, modern inks, have, they're high, they have a high acid content because it etches onto the paper as you write. That's why you can't erase it. It binds to the paper. Um, as a result, the inks that they use could be blotted out. It could be wiped away. Now, let's back that up. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, in verses 13 and 14, he says, And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh... He has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Verse 14, having wiped out, that's the same word, exalepho, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He erased it. This is like the difference between seeing something written with a magic marker and seeing something on a chalkboard. <laughs> Just go up, you erase it, it's gone. And that's what he's saying. He wiped it out. Those things, the sins of our lives that were contrary to us. He's taken them out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, blotted out, obliterated. By the way, if you live, if, if the reality in which you live is short of this, if you live in the guilt of past sins, of, of past behaviors, of things that have been to your account, but have been wiped out, I want to encourage you, think about this. When he says that I will remember your sins no more, guess what? He chooses to forget. He wipes them away. He obliterates the record. And that's exactly what the, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, when he says there's therefore now no condemnation. None, zero, doesn't exist to those who are in Christ Jesus. 
So here in verse 19, we were talking about, I looked at the first half of it where he says, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Here's the second benefit of repenting, turning to God. Now the word refreshing is an interesting term. The word picture is that of being, uh, of someone who's able to, to pause and to catch their breath. That's the word. I mean, it's tied to air. It's tied to, uh, it, it's a it's a kind of a compound word, but what it means is the same thing as a soldier that's regaining his strength after a battle. That's the word refresh here. And when he's talking about that, uh, I believe that in general, Peter is referring to the second coming of Christ and to the repentance of Israel in general. However, I also believe that there's a specific application to believers, both then and now. The Apostle Paul writes in Titus 3.5, he says, according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. And what Peter is preaching to this crowd is about the renewing that would come through the Holy Spirit. The Bible tells us as we draw near unto God, he'll draw near unto us. There's no greater relief than for one to be refreshed through personally encountering God's love. It's a sigh of relief. And that's sort of what that word means. It's like, oh, I can, I can, I can rest in that. There's no greater relief than letting the weight of one's life down onto Jesus. Verse 20, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So following Israel's repentance, God will send Messiah, Jesus, as mentioned previously, uh, this is likely refers to the second advent of Christ when Jesus returns to set up his thousand year reign on the earth. He's saying, look, that he didn't come when you wanted him to come doesn't mean that he's not going to. He will fulfill all things. And he's letting Israel know you had it kind of right because you wanted Messiah to set up his kingdom, but he had to atone for sin. He will set up his kingdom. Those things that were spoken by the prophets will come to pass. That they didn't come to pass when he came and he went to the cross. And when you murdered him, is, it, it, that doesn't mean that it's not part of his plan, part of God's plan. And it's clear uh, from verse 21 that God foresaw that the nation of Israel would reject Christ, and that the church age, the, the age of grace in which we live, would remain in place uh, before his second coming, before his second advent. So in the meantime, heaven must receive Christ until the time of restoration of all things, which points forward to the millennium, to the millennial reign of Christ. We look at, you look at the 69 weeks in Daniel. I don't want to go into all of that, but there's, there's 70 weeks mentioned in Daniel chapter 9. That 70th week is yet future. That's the great tribulation. That's the time of great trouble on the earth. The, year, the church is taken out of here. And at the end of that time, Jesus comes riding back in, his, sets his foot down on the Mount of Olives. He claims essentially victory over the earth by the word of his mouth. Armies of, of the, the world are, are gathered together against him and he slays them by the breath of his mouth. He, he just, with a breath. And at that point, he begins to set up his kingdom then, and he will reign from Jerusalem personally for a thousand years. Keep in mind that as Peter speaks this to the crowd at the temple there in Solomon's portico by the gate beautiful, 
that he had just recently seen Jesus received up into heaven and was himself also waiting for his soon return. These guys didn't know that we would be here 2,000 years later still waiting. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews was written because they were so beat down. They were so discouraged because this is years after the, the crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and Jesus hadn't returned and they were under great persecution. And the writer writes that as a letter of encouragement saying, don't walk away from Christianity. Don't go back to Judaism. That he hasn't returned doesn't mean that he's not intimately involved in the affairs of your life. And that truth holds for us today. So Peter, as he writes this, he's looking at it as, as this is an imminent thing. And it still is. But understanding the context helps us to understand these sometimes difficult to interpret passages. This passage, uh, commentators vary on and they have different ideas about. But the one that makes the most sense is that Peter is speaking from his own experience and his own expectation. You guys put him on the cross because he didn't fulfill your expectation. That doesn't mean that he won't. That means not right now. He will return and he will Uh, rule uh, over the earth. So in verses 23 through 26, as we wrapped up up the chapter, Peter warns of the danger of rejecting Jesus. He's warning these people. He's saying, look, you can't afford to get it wrong twice. Verse 22, he says, for Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. So here, Peter reaches back into Deuteronomy chapter 18, where God promises Moses to raise up a prophet like himself from among the Jews. Now, many in in their day, they assumed the prophet spoken of here would be someone different than the Messiah. And Peter's saying, no, 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 no. He's making it clear that they are one and the same. Moses served as a deliverer of God's people. As a prophet, he spoke for God to God's people. He held both offices. Moses, we know, was a type for Christ, an impression. His life as a deliverer, as a prophet, pointed to a future fulfillment that Jesus himself would have. And that's what Peter's point is here. He's saying, look, that prophet, that one that was spoken of back in the days of Moses, that's Jesus. That's him. He is the one that was foreshadowed all those centuries ago. Verse 23, he says, and it shall be, looking forward, that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. That's the warning. You don't hear the one that God has sent, you'll be destroyed. Now the words, it shall be here, they're in a future tense. And Peter applies it to the crowd specifically, but also to the Jews in general. You've got to understand, he is a Jewish man speaking to Jews. And having rejected the Messiah as he presented himself to Israel, Peter's warning, you want to avoid the consequences of doubly rejecting Christ. Why? Because in doing so, if that would be the case, all that would remain would be judgment. That's it. Now, I want to notice too that he uses the term every soul. And that's significant. Until now, God's dealings Uh, had been with the nation of Israel as a nation. But under the new covenant, God deals with individuals. 
Uh, and in the case of Israel, a group of individuals. In the case of the church, we are a group of individuals. It is individual. It is no longer you're saved because you're part of that group. It's no longer you're in because you're part of that group. Is you have to make a decision yourself. And that's why I believe in the future, Israel will not be the sum of the Jewish people contained within the geographical borders of that nation. That's not Israel. Israel today is a secular, largely godless nation. Doesn't mean that they don't have favored status with God, but I believe rather Israel will be the sum of the Jewish people who have repented of sin and embraced Jesus as Messiah. That's Israel. In that repentance, their sins would be blotted out, their souls would be refreshed, and finally the third benefit we see of repentance and turning to God, they would be spared from impending judgment. And that applies to us as well. Verse 24, Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. So born during the time of the judges, Samuel would be the last judge. He was the last of the judges. He was also the first in a long line of men that would be called as prophets. Even though Moses had prophesied and all that, there was a whole line of prophets that God brought onto the scene to actually be his mouthpiece. Peter reminds the people that this is not something new. He's saying, look, this, is, this has been spoken of all along. It's been God's plan. He's spoken about the prophets or through the prophets for centuries. Now, in Hebrews chapter 1, the writer tells us how the prophets had spoken. He, Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, the writer there says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son. The word his is in italics. What he says literally has spoken to us in son. He's not talking about lineage. He's talking about position, the son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. So none of the prophets had been given the entire message. And that's Peter's point. That's also the writer of the Hebrews point. They had spoken in many portions, many ways, pieces and parts. That is, until Jesus. And now as the, as the prophet, spoken of by Moses in Deuteronomy 18, the writer in Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the, totality, the, the total message, he's the totality, he's the embodiment of God's message to man. Because he's more than a prophet. He's a son, the son. He's not just a son, he's the heir of all things. He is creator, God. And that's the point that's being made there. It's the point that John makes when he speaks of the recreation in John chapter one as well. And, and then Peter here, he goes on and he says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant, which God made to our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, Peter here appealing to his countrymen speaks of the advantages that the Jews had. They were sons of the prophets. They were of the lineage of Abraham. He was the father of their nation. As the promised blessings of Abraham extend to Israel, we understand that it's far more than a physical lineage that's being spoken of here. He's not talking about, yeah, you are the seed of Abraham, but that goes further. Paul gives illumination in Galatians chapter 3, in 3.16, Galatians. He says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, plural as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. So 
Peter is saying the same thing that Paul exhorts the, the people here in Galatians. He's saying, look, it's the seed of Abraham in you, by virtue of the fact that you belong to Christ, that you are part of the families of the earth that would be blessed through Abraham's seed. But that seed is singular. It points to Christ. What Peter's saying here, what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promised seed of Abraham, through whom all of the families of the earth are now blessed. Now in verse 26, as, as Peter wraps up talking to these people, he makes an allusion, he alludes to the Gentiles. Now we know that further on in the book of Acts, the gospel will specifically go through to the Gentiles through a man whose name had been Saul and was changed to Paul, became the apostle Paul. But there again, there's, there's, he alludes to it here, stating the gospel would go to Israel first, which it did. In verse 26, he says, to you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. You know, that is just so significant to me. He doesn't say, he, he doesn't keep beating them up with the truth. He says, look, all of that, all of this, the prophetic word, the history of your nation, all of it pointed to the fact that God simply wanted to bless you. When Jesus got on the, the spiritual leaders of his day, he said, woe to you. You go about on land and sea for one proselyte. When you have him, you make him twice the son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you. You devour widows' houses for a pretense. Woe to you. Because they had so gotten it wrong, they were trying to compel men. He said, you tie up heavy loads for men. Peter's got it right. He says, you want to know what God's wanting to do? And folks, it's the same here today. He wants to bless you. He wants to pour out his spirit on your life and, and give you blessings that you can't have any other way. He wants to turn every one of us from our iniquities. But he's saying to the crowd here, he says, look, you got it wrong in thinking you knew what his first coming was about because Jesus had not come in power as a military deliverer. He had not set up his kingdom immediately and thrown off the Romans. He didn't come as a world leader to establish his kingdom on the earth then. He tells the crowd gathered there by the gate beautiful that his mission indeed had been to turn away every one of them and every one of us from our iniquities. He will come in power. He will set up his kingdom. He will come as a world leader to rule and reign personally from Jerusalem. That's the second time he comes. The first time there was work to do and they missed it. Peter, now as a fisher of men, Remember Jesus, when he called him away from the nets, he said, come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. They're John and Andrew and Peter, uh, business partners. And here we see Jesus or Peter uh, for the second time uh, here with a huge crowd that God had worked out to gather. Peter didn't show up at the temple that day. He went to pray. God had other things in mind. And as Peter steps into, he leans into what God is doing. God uses him powerfully. He says, look, it's not me. It's not because I'm all holy and stuff. It's not because I'm this Mr. Spiritual here. It's not my power. But you've got to believe that there is a God who has power. And let me tell you what he wants to do. He wants to bless your life. He wants to pour out his spirit. He wants you to enjoy a life that's lived above 
your circumstances. For us, well, Peter, as, as a fisherman, he says he'll bring comfort and blessing and encouragement to the people. And for us, may we be comforted and blessed and encouraged in the knowledge of the same. There is so much in this chapter that applies directly to you and I. Yeah, Peter puts the hammer down with these people. He says, look, you did this. And, and, and I, I really, honestly, I can't say that I could stand here and say, yeah, look at those creepy Jewish people. You know, there are actually groups out there that, that refer to Jews as Jesus killers. They are that adamant. God forbid. Because had I been in the crowd that day when he rode into town, I might have had a palm frond in my hand, thrown it in the road. Had I been in the crowd that day in front of Pilate, I might have screamed, crucify him. Had I been in the crowd in front of the gate beautiful that day, I probably would have been one of the ones whose heart was pierced with the truth of the gospel. We're no different than they are. You know, this isn't, let's look at the bad guys and then look at the good guys and see which team wins and draw, yay, good. No, this is looking at the, the human heart. The Bible tells us is none righteous. No, not one, not in ourselves, but we were the righteousness of Christ. What a blessing. Next week, we're going to get into chapter four, the Lord willing. And we're going to talk about what happens when these guys get in trouble because trouble's coming. You don't, you, you, you don't live in the place where they lived and be in the religious environment in which they were and have this kind of a crowd, this kind of a following and this much power going to the people without getting people's attention. And the creepy religious guys show up. I love calling them that. But, you know, that's truly, that's what they were. So anyway, we're going to look at that. We're going to look at what happens. We're going to look at the, the treatment that they get and how they actually, they're actually glad that it happened. In chapter five, that's, we'll get into that. They say, man, isn't it cool that we got persecuted for his name? <laughs> isn't it wonderful that, yeah, it's like I got this black eye. Look at this shiner I've got, you know. I, I love this, the whole narrative here in the book of Acts because it really illuminates and illustrates what a life given for the glory of God looks like. And it doesn't always look pretty. It doesn't always look, you know, all sleek and shiny and packaged well and all of that. It looks a lot like your life and mine. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, this brief look in your word as we have studied here in Acts chapter 3. And, and Lord, I pray that for each of us that the takeaway would be more than anything we've looked at this morning, the simple reality, the simple truth that you sent Jesus to bless us and that you still want to bless our lives, Lord, that you want us to enjoy every spiritual blessing. And they, that may not be temporal blessings. That may not be physical blessings. It may not be financial or, or any other thing, but that you want to bless our lives. So I pray, Father, that you would continue to speak truth into our hearts as we go away from this place today, that you would continue to work, that you would continue to mold us, to shape us, to conform us to the image of your Son. We thank you. Thank you that you love us the way you do. And we just give you this time. Pray that you would receive our worship. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.